First of all, I always thought A.D. just meant after dinner, since the preacher's always talking about the Last Supper. You see, what Big Henry didn't know was... Then they all began to dance slowly with the rhythm of the music. Round and round the fire they danced. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me every time you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. You know, since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and personal tales and family tales and historical tales. When we say stories, we're not talking about the news. We're talking about all that stuff. And behind every story is a conversation, a conversation brought on by a memory or a story that you know and love that you might like to share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime, and it's what we're all about here on the Appleseed. This is going to be a great hour. We're going to fill it with stories from Dan Kalen. He's going to tell us a rendition of the story Monkey Stew about the lengths a lady will go in order to protect her banana tree and her bananas. Then we'll hear an entry in the Radio Family Journal as well, a memory of meeting a new person who would become an old friend. We'll enjoy a conversation with the South Carolina storyteller Tim Lowry about why on earth he has that old ceramic camp mug on the desk of his office. And we'll hear stories from Bill Lepp, too. He'll tell us a version of the biblical story of Jonah. And we'll hear a story from Kevin Carr called Sweet Tooth and a story from Martha Hamilton called The Dancing Brothers. You'll enjoy every word. And we're going to begin with something a little crazy. This is Dan Kalen and a hilarious take on an old story called Monkey Stew. This is a story performed in front of an enthusiastic audience. Kind of wild, kind of gross, kind of crazy. What can you expect from a story called Monkey Stew? We're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Here's Dan Kalen. How many people here tonight would consider themselves banana eaters? Okay, thank you. How many of you then would consider yourselves compulsive, obsessive banana eaters? Anybody? All right, last question. Anybody here so very compulsive about eating bananas that you would dare to steal one from a monkey? Anybody? Hey, shame on you. There was a lady, she loved her bananas. She ate bananas all the time. She even had a banana tree there beside her house so that she could have the bananas ready-made for her at any time she wanted. And she would eat those bananas every day, every hour she would eat those bananas. She had a little ladder that she had built beside the tree so that she could climb up there and grab those bananas in handfuls, in bunches, in whole stalks. She loved those bananas. But she ate those bananas so very much, she started to show how much she'd eaten. And it became harder and harder to get those bananas. But she couldn't live without those bananas. And this woman grew 
until one day, something very terrible, something horrible happened. The ladder broke. <laughs> yeah. And she couldn't get those bananas. And all she could do is think about the bananas, having more bananas. But she couldn't reach them. And then she thought, Monkey. Monkey likes the bananas. Monkey can get the bananas. Monkey! Come, monkey! Come, monkey and the monkey! He came a-running. <laughs> And a woman said, monkey, get banana, bring banana, lady want banana. And so the monkey climbed up to the tree very easily and he pulled a bunch of those bananas down and as he pulled those bananas down, this bulbous woman watched and just drooled over the anticipation of these bananas. And monkey came on down with those bananas and he gave them to the woman and she snatched them up as fast as she could. And she hardly took time to peel them and shoved them down her throat. Didn't even chew just one after the other. Down, oh, oh. And Monkey stood there awaiting a banana. But she didn't even share a single one. Instead, when she had finished and she had banana peels all about her, she looked at the monkey, she said, oh, good monkey. Go get me more bananas. Now the monkey was thinking twice about this. But he climbed up that tree and he started to pull down the bananas. And he watched as the woman was drooling all over herself. And the monkey started to eat the bananas. And the woman stood there watching the monkey. Like, no, no monkey, bad monkey, bring the monk banana to me, monkey. But the monkey, he was just having a good time just eating those bananas. And he took a couple of green, shriveled, rotten ones and she threw them down at the woman. And she knocked those bananas away, bad monkey, bad monkey, come down here, monkey. Ah, 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 monkey, monkey. The monkey, he just kind of like, And he slid down out of that tree with those bananas eating and she tried to grab him, but he was much quicker, danced around her and ran on off. And the woman said, oh, monkey, come back here. And she got so angry, so upset at that monkey for stealing all those bananas from her. She could think of nothing else but getting back at that monkey. So this bulbous, bulging woman, she got some sap from the tree, some pitch out of the tree, and she started to shape it. She started to mold it, and she made a little girl out of this pitch, and she pulled out some of her own hair. She put it on this little girl, tied it in ribbons, dressed it in a little dress. She took some of those rotten bananas and painted them nice and yellow, and she put them in a little basket by the girl and set the pitch girl outside her door, and she squeezed back into the house and waited. And soon Monkey came by, and Monkey saw the little pitch girl, and Monkey saw the bananas, and Monkey wanted the bananas. So Monkey came up and said, girl, give me the banana. But the girl said nothing because she was made of pitch. And the monkey waited and he said, girl, I want some of the bananas, share with me the bananas. Monkey wants some of those bananas. But the girl, she just sat there, of course, 
and Monkey was getting very irritated, so he slapped the girl. Oh. Oh. But he got stuck in the pitch. Ah. Girl, let go of my hand. Don't do this, eh? Girl, stop that. Boom. Oh. And got stuck again. Monkey was getting very irritated with his girl, and he kicked her too. Oh. Just girl, let go of me. And the girl started to fall apart, but he couldn't get away from her. And And as he writhed on the ground inside the house, the bulbous woman was smiling. And she came out of the house. She saw the monkey there squirming on the ground, pitch running all over him. And the monkey cried out, help me, help me. And she said, all right. She pulled out a huge knife. Shut up! You're welcome. And the woman, she gathered up all these bits of monkey. And she took it into her house. And she started to chop up some vegetables and some herbs. And as she chopped them up, thinking about a delicious monkey stew, she heard a sound. Cook me gently, cook me slow. You should listen to me and let me go. The woman wasn't sure what that sound was. She continued up her cooking and she gathered up all the herbs, and the vegetables and the bits of mungay and put them there in her pot. She started to stir it up and as she stirred, she heard that song again, stew me gently. Stew me slow. You should listen to me and let me go. She couldn't quite figure out what that sound was. And soon the stew was done and she ladled out huge blobs of this monkey stew. She was drooling all about herself in anticipation of eating this. And as she took the first scoop and shoved it into her mouth, again came that sound. Eat me gently. Eat me slow. You should listen to me and let me go. And by now, this bulbous, bulging woman, she knew that this was the monkey somehow playing a trick on her. So she started shoveling up that stew as fast as she could until she'd finished the whole stew and she had bits of it rolling down her, messing up her dress stew and saliva all about her. Oh, and she felt so good. And just as you would after a nice big meal, the woman went to take a little nap. But as she slept, her stomach started rumbling and roaring, just pulsating around inside, and it started to hurt, and she, she couldn't sleep, she couldn't think. And she, was, she woke up, and she heard that sound. What again? Digest me gently! Digest me slow! Listen to me, you should let me go! And the woman, she screamed, no, no, I won't! You won't, won't let you go! And her stomach was pulsating and growing, and it pulled out till it stretched the very edge of her skin, and she couldn't take it any longer! And she screamed, go! 
right at that moment, her body exploded. Ah, and down she fell with a huge thud. And as she fell, from out of that mass of mess and guts and gore, popped lots of little monkeys. <laughs> and as these monkeys came out, they started to dance around the woman, just wiggling their butts at her and laughing. One monkey cooked gently, one monkey cooked slow, makes many, many monkeys. Goodbye, we've got to go. And as the monkeys danced off, they each took a banana. An enthusiastic performance before an enthusiastic audience with even an enthusiastic accompanist. That was Dan Kalen with a story called Monkey Stew, and it's a pretty energetic way to start off our hour together today. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Kevin Carr, a story called Sweet Tooth. You'll hear a terrifically hilarious uh, rendition of the story of Jonah, told by the West Virginia tall tale teller Bill Lepp. In fact, he calls his version Jonah the real story. And you'll hear the Dancing Brothers from Martha Hamilton as well. All this and a conversation with Tim Lowry about the old ceramic mug on his office desk and an entry in the Radio Family Journal as well. I'm Sam Payne. Stick around. A lot more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on the Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a wild and crazy performance of an old story called Monkey Stew, a performance by Dan Kalen in front of an audience who just ate it up. And uh, there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Kevin Carr called Sweet Tooth and a story from Bill Lepp that he calls Jonah the real story, the story of uh, the Bible story of Jonah and the whale, at least the way Bill tells it. You're going to hear a story called The Dancing Brothers as well. But because we know that uh, the sharing of memories can sometimes bring about a story that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine. It's a memory about meeting a new person who would become an old friend. You know, you never know that right when you meet somebody, the role that they'll play in your life. But you may already be thinking of someone who fits that description, somebody that you met without knowing that they might become an old friend. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
I remember the phone call. Hey guys, this is Kathy. I wonder if you'd be willing to take a friend of mine out to see Zion National Park over the next couple of days. She's from Israel, and she's ready to hop on a bus for southern Utah this afternoon. Well, Kathy was my sister-in-law, and so we agreed. Our jaws were set, our teeth were clenched, but we agreed. It wouldn't have been much of a problem any other week, but this week we had concerts to do, soccer games one after another, church stuff up to our eyeballs, school projects to finish. In retrospect, it's tough to bring to the memory of that week the panic that we already felt at how on earth we were going to make it through, and then to add the obligation of hosting a friend, not even our friend, but the friend of a family member, chauffeuring her through two days of national parking. Well, forgive us, but we were cursing Kathy's name under our breaths, and the curses grew ever more profane as we learned that this was not even a dear old friend of Kathy's, but a girl that she had met on the street outside a Salt Lake City art gallery only moments before she called us, a perfect stranger. And so it was that with painted-on pleasantness, we went downtown to fetch the girl from an evening greyhound. And she got off the bus, Reut Shmueli. She'd been in the United States touring with a backpack on her back and still fuming under a carefully managed sheen of social propriety. We loaded her things into the car and began the drive home. And that's when it began to happen, I think. The feigned pleasantness lasted about 40 seconds and then gave quickly away to genuine affection, and then within the half hour, to deep and abiding friendship. She stayed with us in the end for six days instead of two. She came to concerts. She hiked canyons with us. She asked us to tell us about our faith tradition, the way we worshipped. That part of our conversation came as we were hiking through Zion National Park. Rayut, as you can imagine, wanted to know how the park got its name. There were late-night talks, family excursions, and when she did leave us, it was with tears and embraces and promises to see each other again. On our coffee table sits a book about Israel sent to us by Reut's parents. Reut's trip took her to other places after she left our house. She went to the Grand Canyon. She stayed for a few nights in Las Vegas. And when she got lost and became frightened in that maze of lights and casinos and restaurants, she took out her phone and she called us, her friends. We talked her through it, and by the end of the night, she was safely back at her hostel, and we were even more inextricably linked together. A year later, Reut's dad took a research job in Washington, D.C., and we went to visit. We met her parents, Moshe and Fiona, and her sister, Ronit. They took us to a dance class at their local synagogue, and sometime later, they visited us in the West. We visited Bryce Canyon National Park together. We hiked and talked about the Torah. They were interested in how we believed and worshipped. We swapped our ideas about favorite characters from the scriptures. And we did it all in the spectacular landscape of one of the most remarkable national parks in the country. They taught us to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, and we ate pomegranates together, picked from our backyard. We didn't see each other for a long time after that, but our affection for each other was deep and abiding. Then, just a year ago, I had the chance to visit Israel. And when I touched down in Tel Aviv, I called the only people I knew in the whole country, Reut's family. They came on a bus from where they lived and brought gifts of honey and CDs of pop music from Israel. And we embraced and talked and laughed together like we'd never been apart.
Reut, our old friend, was living in Berlin, but her parents sent her love. I wonder sometimes where all that grumpy indignance went on the day before Reut came to visit us, the day of Kathy's call. But it's not much of a mystery, really. It's as simple as this, I suppose. It's easy to be angry at circumstances, easy to get disgruntled at situations. But at the heart of situations and circumstances are people, people with hang-ups and abilities and things they need and things they can give, people who have had a hard day at work or who are tired of doing the dishes or who climb down from greyhound buses full of hope and anxiety and who don't speak the language well. And while it's easy to offer ultimatums to a mute set of circumstances, it's tougher when you can see and shake hands with and buy a milkshake for the people down at the center of the circumstances. It was easy to brush Reut off when she was nothing but an abstract inconvenience, an obstacle to our getting things done that week. But then she materialized, became a real person. And in the face of that, it was simply easier to be friends. Impossible, in fact, to be anything else. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. As we said before the entry began... You never know sometimes uh, how the person that you've just met will play an important role in your life or might. And chances are you may have someone in mind as that story of Reut unfolded. Somebody may have come to mind, somebody that you met once upon a time without ever knowing that they'd become old friends in the end. And maybe that's a story worth sharing with the people that you love. You can write it down and send it to us. Send it to our email address, theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. We sure love to hear from you. Coming up, we've got stories from Kevin Carr and Bill Lepp and Martha Hamilton. Uh, but first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we love, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and of course, through the telling of tales from teller to listener, sometimes through generations and generations. And talking with friends about some of the ways in which those stories get down into our lives and the shape that they take is something that we love to do here on The Appleseed. And I'm so pleased to be joined by the great South Carolina storyteller, Tim Lowry, to chat a little bit about something from his life. Uh, You know, I've seen you Uh, tell stories at festivals, especially in this era of Zoom recording, right? Zoom performances. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've seen you take uh, what's essentially a plate with a number of artifacts on it. And there's an invitation to your audience to point to an artifact and hear its story and have the festival's performances unfold in, in that way. A visit to your office is kind of an endless one of those. You can just point to just about anything uh, (laughs) and say, tell me the story behind that, and you'll get a great story. But there's a mug on your desk that I want to hear about. Tell me about that mug, Tim. Oh, yes. Well, it's just a big, clunky, heavy, 
white ceramic mug. I dare say it's army surplus. It's that that kind of clunky and heavy. Sure. And it came from the summer camp that I used to attend when I was a boy and a middle schooler and a teenager. And um, it, it just, every time I sip a little water or whatever else out of that mug, usually it has water in it here on my desk. You know, you try to get your, what is it? 64 ounces a day. Sure. Um, I, I'm always rocketed back in my memory to summer camp. We had Kool-Aid in those mugs, but due to health regulations, there had to be a certain chlorine content in the water. So the Kool-Aid had a distinctive flavor that you never got with Kool-Aid at home at summer camp. And we complained about it at the time, but now I can just get a whiff of swimming pool Kool-Aid or swimming pool water. And I think, oh, summer camp Kool-Aid. That's, <laughs> that's what I think about. And when we, we ate family style, so you'd sit down at a big long table, about 10 kids, and there would be uh, counselors at either end of the table, not always a married couple, but very often it would be a married couple. So it was like your camp mom and dad at yeah. meal time. And when lunch or dinner was over, then you had to clean your plates and somebody would get a spatula and they'd scrape all the big heavy plates. And then the cups would get passed down to the end one mug was always designated to put your spoons in. One mug was always put your forks in. One mug you put your knife in. And the knife had to go in heavy handle first because if you didn't put them in that way, they would all flip out and fall all over the place. I can remember everybody getting that routine down, all the clattering of the dishes going down to the end of the table. And all of that coordination was um, orchestrated by a lady that we called she didn't know this, but we called her Tinkerbell because her real name was Mrs. Howard. And she always wore a very lovely dress. I mean, the rest of us were in camp attire, but she ruled in the dining room. And so she always dressed for dinner. She would wear a lovely dress and she had a little brass bell. And if we got a little too rowdy or um, weren't um, being respectful to one another or worse yet, were playing with our food, then... <laughs> she would ring that bell and bring the whole dining room to attention and give us a little lecture. <laughs> I remember her very well. And uh, we would complain about that bell ringing because we had, you know, we had an agenda when yeah. we came to lunch. There was, there was a, always, you could start singing, tell a joke, Mr. Jones, tell a joke. And if you just kept singing, until he finally got up, he would, you know, tell you a corny joke. And then we'd start, we'd start with old camp songs. And eventually we'd want a cook's parade and we'd start singing. We want a cook's parade. We want a cook's parade. Hi ho the dairy. Oh, we want a cook's parade. And we would keep singing until the cook stopped what they were doing and came marching out, beating on pots and pans and banging pot lids like cymbals and paraded around the dining room. But you could never ask for that too early in the meal. Right. Because right. if you did, Tinkerbell would come and she would ring and bring everybody back to order and say, you can't do that until you've finished eating your meal. During dessert, we can have some jokes for a cook's parade. We would always fuss about that. You know, she was spoiling our fun. <laughs> well, I, I grew up and moved away and uh, was back at camp years later with my wife. My wife grew up there. Her mom and dad were music directors at the camp. So we were back there visiting family and there is no better place to have a family reunion than camp because 
someone cleans up for you. Someone else cooks for you. Recreation is all planned out. It's perfect. <laughs> so we were back there for a family reunion. And I went in the kitchen and got one of these old army surplus mugs. There weren't many left. They had moved to other dishes. And I said, I have to have one of those mugs y'all because it brings back a flood of memories. They said, Oh, sure. Take it. We don't care. <laughs> and then I sat down at the lunch table and all the kids came flooding in and times have changed. No one called them to order. They all went, they went through a buffet line. There was no campus mom and dad to pass the rolls around and make sure you were minding your table manners and the noise. I was so loud. And I leaned over to my wife and I said, I never thought I'd say this, but I just long for a little brass bell and an authoritative figure. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like Tim Lowry's office is full of story worthy stuff. We know that you've got story worthy stuff around you too. And we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling makes for memories that last a lifetime. Tim Lowry, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Tim Lowry, the great South Carolina storyteller. You've heard his stories on the show before, of course, and it's great to talk with him about some of the stories that exist right in his office, right on his very desk as he talks about that ceramic mug. Maybe it brings back a memory of an object that is important to you for one reason or another, an object that may not be important to anybody else. Again, those are stories worth sharing. There's a lot more coming up. Up next, you're going to hear a story called Sweet Tooth by Kevin Carr. And a little later on, the biblical story of Jonah told by the West Virginia tall tale teller, Bill Lepp. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with us on today's episode of The Appleseed, and uh, always a pleasure for me to be with you. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we had a conversation with storyteller Tim Lowry about the old ceramic mug on his office desk. That was a pleasure, and we'll be sure to have Tim back. You know, after that story at the top of the hour, monkey stew, maybe we should cleanse our palate with a little something sweet. This story is called Sweet Tooth, and it's by the storyteller Kevin Carr. Now, in this story, there's a maple tree that creates quite a sticky mess. Well, who do you turn to when you accidentally make a mess? Think about that as we listen to our story. And then maybe give them a call afterwards to thank them. This is Sweet Tooth by Kevin Carr here on The Appleseed. This story is about the time that Tony Beaver's sister, Miss Betsy Beaver, was visiting camp. She was an amazing woman. She had the power to make everything go right, to calm the camp down. Matter of fact, there were these two pine trees outside the cookhouse, and Tony and the men used to tease them. When they'd walk by the pine trees, they'd say, 
Ooh, looks like a good day for cutting down pine trees. And the needles would stand out straight and the trees would shiver and be all jittery and nervous. But Betsy Beaver, she'd come out and she'd say, now, now, and she'd stroke their needles and she'd say, those boys are not going to cut you down today. Well, that's the way she was. Now, this particular story concerns the time that Big Henry found a sweet little maple tree that he hadn't seen before. Now, you have to know about Big Henry that he had a powerful sweet tooth. He loved anything sweet. And so the thought that he might be able to make him some maple syrup, well, it drove him crazy. And he went and he got a little bung and hammered it into the tree and hung a bucket there. And that maple sap started flowing out of that tree into the bucket. Well, he filled that bucket, then he went and got another bucket. And he filled that one even faster than the first one. And that didn't make any sense. Then he went and got another bucket and filled that one up. You see, what Big Henry didn't know was that that particular tree, well, the roots reached down into the reservoir of all the maple sap in the world. It was a direct conduit. And that sap just started flowing faster and faster, and Big Henry was running like a crazy man, hunting up buckets and tubs and wash basins, and finally he was hauling out old bathtubs and filling them all up with maple sap. And at last he got so frustrated he didn't know what to do. And he got so nervous he just went and got a saw, and he sawed the poor little tree down. But that didn't stop the problem. It turned into a regular geyser, a gusher of maple sap flying all over the camp. Well, the men ran out and they saw what was happening and they quickly dug a channel so that at least that sap would flow down and into the Eel River. Finally, Tony himself came out and the men were running around. They didn't know what to do to stop that. Tony, he sized up the situation and he knew what had to be done. And he went and he got his big old ox and a length of logging chain, and he wrapped it around that stump, and he pulled it out. And you know, kind of like when you have a tooth pulled. Well, after a while, it stops bleeding, and same thing with that stump. He pulled it out, and after a while, the sap stopped flowing. Well, they had another problem now, which was that the Eel River was completely clogged up with maple sap, and they didn't know what to do. Well, Betsy Beaver, she came out and said, Well, boys, the solution should be obvious. Just light it on fire, and pretty soon you'll have maple syrup, and the syrup will just flow down the river. So that's what they did. Tony, he jumped across to the other side of the river where he kept a little oil well, a little sweet oil well, just in case they needed any kind of oil for any reason. And he opened it up, and they let the oil flow out, and he set it on fire, and it burned for three days and three nights with the thickest, sweetest smoke you'd ever seen. But when it was all finished, all that had happened was, all that sap had turned into maple syrup, but it still was gumming up the river. They didn't know what to do now, and now they were getting nervous. They were afraid that there'd be a swarm of bees, and the kind they were particularly afraid of were those bees that they'd heard tell that Paul Bunyan, that famous logger from up north, that he had bred. 
You see, they have such big mosquitoes up there that Paul Bunyan got the idea that if you breed those giant mosquitoes with honeybees, will you get bees that'll give more honey? And sure enough, it's true. He bred them. They ended up being six feet long, and they gave six gallons of honey at a time. However, they were kind of dangerous because they had a stinger at both ends. Anyway, Tony and his men were afraid those bees would be attracted down there. So they didn't know what to do. Well, Betsy Beaver came out again, and she said, Well, Tony, you just have to finish the job. Set it on fire again and burn it till it turns into maple sugar. Then you can get picks and you can break the sugar up into little cakes, and it'll float down the river. And so that's what they did, and sure enough, when they were finished burning it off, it was like winter time, except instead of ice, it was all brown, brown maple sugar. And they started breaking it into six and eight foot chunks, and sure enough, it did, in fact, float down the river. Now, Betsy Beaver, she needed to visit some friends downstream, so they fixed her up one really nice chunk, they tied a chair to it. She got a little suitcase and a little parasol to protect her from the sun. And she sat down on the chair and started floating down river as pretty as you please. Well, shortly after that, when the men were cleaning up, one of them found a strange piece of yellow glass. Now, it was right near some of those rocks that Tony liked to sit on, the big gray ones, where one of them had cracked and so... He figured maybe it had melted out of the middle of that gray rock. Well, this fellow picked it up, and he looked through it. And don't you know, he could see into the next world. Well, now that's a sight that takes your breath away and makes your soul tingle. And he just sat right down in the dirt and kept staring through into the next world. Well, he missed dinner, and pretty soon a couple of the hands, they came down to look for him. And when they called his name, he didn't answer. They went up to him, and all he did was hand them that piece of glass. And they each took a look in the glass, and it wasn't too long before they were sitting in the dirt next to the first man, and they were just passing that glass back and forth. Well, a few more hands came to look for them, and the same thing happened. And it wasn't too long before every single person in that whole camp, with the exception of Tony Beaver and Moses Mutters, was sitting in the dirt, passing that yellow glass back and forth. Well, Tony came down to see what was going on, and the men handed him the glass. Now, Tony, he hesitated a long minute, but then he looked through it, too, and don't you know he recognized something, something beautiful? And he sat himself down started passing the glass like everybody else. Well, Moses mutters. He was running around. He couldn't even rouse his old friend, ain't that so? And the jokey fellow was sitting there crowing to himself as he looked through the glass. Moses mutters couldn't get anybody to stand up. And he was screaming about saving your souls. Well, they were looking at the next world, so they didn't listen to him at all. So Moses got his old mule, and he headed off downstream to find Miss Betsy Beaver to see if she could be of help. Well, she arrived with Moses about two days later, and it was a terrible sight. All those men were still sitting in the dirt. They hadn't eaten or shaved or anything. They were just passing that glass around in a big circle, staring through at the next world. Betsy Beaver, she took one look, and she knew what she had to do. She went and she fired up the cookhouse, 
and she started cooking. Acres of hotcakes, gallons of coffee, fresh muffins, and the smell of that food came wafting down to those men who'd been sitting in the dirt for two or three days and had grabbed them by the stomach and pulled them up to the cookhouse where they had the breakfast of their lives. But you know, there were a few men who weren't tempted by that smell. Not all men are led by their stomachs. Betsy Beaver knew what they needed. You see, some men aren't motivated by food or earthly pleasures. They're only motivated by work. So Betsy, she sent the men who'd had breakfast, she sent them out to work. And the sound of the saws on the trees and the mill starting up, well, that's what pulled those men out of the dirt and up, got them to dust themselves off and clean themselves off and go get something to eat and rush out to join those men who were working away. At last, there was only one person still sitting there staring through that glass, and that was Tony Beaver. And Betsy Beaver herself, she came down and she said, Tony, won't you come with me? And he wouldn't move. So she started to sing him a song that she remembered from their childhood. Now that song, well, it sounded like, it sounded like the wind through trees, and it sounded like a waterfall going over some big rocks or a stream bubbling down, and it sounded like, it sounded like all of nature. And at last, Tony, he looked up, and he looked at his sister. She took him by the hand, led him up to the cookhouse, and fed him a good breakfast. And after breakfast, Tony was sitting there helping do the dishes. And he was saying to her, but sis, you don't understand what it was like to look through and see the next world. And Betsy Beaver, she looked at Tony, and she smiled. She said, Tony, don't you know that I'm like a lot of women? We were born able to see into the next world. And Tony looked at her, and he knew that it was true. And that's how Tony came to find out who was the real big boss in the Beaver family. Sweet Tooth by Kevin Carr. And how about a Bible story next? This is Bill Lepp, the West Virginia tall tale teller, with uh, the story of Jonah, a version that he calls the real story. We'll see what you think. Here's Bill Lepp on the Appleseed. Jonah, the real story. I went to Sunday school and church pretty regular when I was growing up, and I got to where I knew the Bible real good. I knew all about how Moses built that big boat and got a bunch of animals and two-by-twos on it, and how Noah led the Egyptians out of Israel, and I figured if I knew the Bible that good, I ought to become a preacher. So I went down to Duke University Divinity School, and I started in. 
But I can tell you right now that them big shot professors of religion got some mighty strange things to teach a man about the Bible. First of all, I always thought A.D. just meant after dinner, since the preacher's always talking about the Last Supper, and I figured B.C. just meant before Clinton. The next thing they taught me, and I thought this was pretty strange, was that King James didn't even write the Bible. They told me that originally it was written in some kind of language called Hebrew. Now, just between you and me, I thought Hebrew was some kind of real man's beer. You know, Hebrew, for the he-man beer drinker in your life. Well, it wasn't long before one of those professors assigned me a paper to write. He said I had to write a paper on the book of Jonah. Well, I went down into the basement of the Duke University Library, way down to the bottom floor where they keep all the books on Jonah, and I found a book called The Real Story of Jonah, and I was a mite surprised at what was in there. As it turns out, the real story of Jonah didn't happen in the ancient Near East at all, but rather happened in West Virginia. And it involves carp and giant coal trains, and it comes right out of the Bible. Honest. You see, old Jonah, he was sitting way up Naw Holler one day there in Kanawha County, West Virginia. He was sitting on his front porch in his rocking chair. He was nestled in between his washing machine and his refrigerator. His window was open, and the sweet, melodious sounds of the Andy Griffith Show were drifting out the window. He had a Hebrew in one hand, and with his other hand, he was petting his ever-so-Gentile hound dog. Well, Jonah was just sitting there, sort of observing his property, and his eyes sparkled as he looked at his shed, where he had nailed one hubcap of every GM car ever made. And then he looked across the driveway, and it just warmed his heart when he saw the rear end of a pickup truck that he had converted into a trailer and written farm use on it in real big white letters. And it just warmed his soul when he looked down his driveway and thought about how hard it had been, but how rewarding it had been, to bury all those tires halfway in the dirt and paint them white to mark his driveway. He was just sitting there thinking to himself, almost heaven, West Virginia. When suddenly the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the Lord said, Jonah, a great sin has come up in Half Dollar, West Virginia, and I need you to go down there and do a little revival and then save those people. Well, now, Jonah had done a little preaching in the past, but lately he'd been doing a little backsliding, if you know what I mean, and, well, I expect you know exactly what I mean. So he didn't want to go to Half Dollar, and he slipped on his boots and headed down towards Cowan, figuring to go to Grafton, because everybody knows that Grafton is the opposite direction of Half Dollar, and everybody knows that down there at Cowan starts that fine and famed run of Weirton's world-famous steel fashion into CSNX railroad tracks, running clear from Cowan to Grafton via Burnsville, Buckhannon, Carrollton, and Phillippe. Now, Jonah was figuring on jumping one of those six-engine, 168-car CSNX monster trains, loaded down with 19,364 tons of pure West Virginia bituminous coal, but as everybody knows, it's illegal to jump a coal train. So Jonah just kind of crouched down in the weeds and waited for the sun to set. And just as the sun was disappearing below the horizon, a big old train pulled out. Well, Jonah looked over one shoulder and then over the other. He saw that nobody was watching and he ran out of the weeds and pulled himself up into the last car of that giant coal train heading towards Grafton. Well, he made himself a hole and he buried himself in the coal and promptly fell asleep because he was pretty tired. I mean, running from the Lord is the sort of thing that'll wear a man out. Well, Jonah was so tired that he didn't even notice that the rain started coming, and boy, it was raining hard. And as most of you know, right there alongside those railroad tracks runs the Buckhannon River. 
As the rains came down, the water in the river started to come up. And pretty soon, the water was even with the grass on the bank. And then it was even with the gravel of the railroad track. And then it was even with the tracks themselves. And then that train was plowing through about six feet of water. Well, the engineer and the crew, they were getting pretty nervous. They were experienced men. They'd driven under all sorts of conditions. But they knew that there was nothing they could do that was going to make that train float. So the engineer and the crew, they got down on their knees and they started praying to their various gods to stop the rain. But alas, Charlie Daniels and Richard Petty don't have much control over the weather. Well, that engineer was right nervous, so he got up out of that train and he started walking back along those coal cars. And pretty soon he came across Jonah, sound asleep like a pocket of methane nestled up in that coal. Well, he reached down and he picked Jonah up and he shook him awake and he said, Boy... You're in a lot of trouble. He said, first of all, you're trespassing. Second of all, this great storm has arisen and we're all going to drown. Well, Jonah kind of woke himself up and got his bearings and saw what was going on. And he said, um, he said, Mr. Engineer Man, I got some good news and I got some bad news. He said, the bad news is this is all my fault. The Lord told me to go to Half Dollar, and I decided to go to Grafton instead. And so the Lord has sent this great storm to show me the error of my ways and to change my direction. He said, the good news is, all you got to do to save yourself is throw me off this train. Well, now this is the 21st century, and that engineer, he was in touch with his emotions and his inner child and his feminine side. And when he heard that outpouring of truth come forth from Jonah, he was just overwhelmed, and he started to cry. And he reached out with both arms, and he hugged Jonah, and he embraced him in a loving way and threw him off the very next bridge they came to. And Jonah plopped down into the muddy waters of the Buckhannon River. Well, now, as most of you know, Below the spillway, the Buckhannon River is a shallow, nasty, murky, sewage-fed river. But above the spillway, it's a deep, nasty, murky, sewage-fed river full of some of the meanest wildlife you'll ever run into. And quicker than you can say live bait for sale, Jonah was swallowed up by a mean, ugly river carp. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days before he ever started praying. Now, folks, I've been on dates for three minutes where I was already praying, and just between you and me, I figure being in the belly of a river carp would be something like being locked in the bathroom of a cross-country greyhound bus with two drunk sick pigs and Ted Kennedy. Now, eventually, Jonah did get around to praying. He said, Lord, he said, I know I'm not the smartest man you ever put on earth. He said, I admit it. I thought hooked on phonics was a fishing lure. I know you want me to go to Half Dollar and do some preaching, and I tried to go to Grafton instead, and so you sent this fish to swallow me up. But he said, Lord, I promise you that if you will get me out of this fish's belly, I will do whatever you want. And the Lord heard Jonah's prayer, and the Lord had compassion on Jonah, and the Lord spoke to that fish, and that fish swam up to shore and spit Jonah out like so much chewed-up beech nut. Well, Jonah got up, dusted himself off, and started heading towards Half Dollar, pausing only long enough to take a shower, play the lottery, and try and satiate his strange but undeniable urge for sushi. Bill Lepp with Jonah, The Real Story. And now you know. We're going to wrap up with a story called The Dancing Brothers, collected by Martha Hamilton. 
It's a story about eight brothers who want to go to a special ceremony that their parents get to go to. However, they're told that the ceremony is only for adults, an answer that children hear far too often. So what do they do? Well, you're going to find out. Here's the Dancing Brothers here on The Appleseed. The Dancing Brothers, a story of the Onondaga Indians. In a time long ago, there lived eight brothers. Late one fall, their mother and father went to a special ceremony and feast. The boys begged to go, but they were told the ceremony was only for adults. The boys were angry. They crept quietly to the spot where the ceremony was held. They watched as the people gathered around a fire and gave thanks to the great spirit. They were singing and dancing, and afterwards, a feast. The boys decided to have their own ceremony. They went to their favorite spot in the forest and built a fire. The oldest brother began to beat a small drum, and they sang songs. Then they all began to dance slowly with the rhythm of the music. Round and round the fire they danced. A strange old man suddenly appeared. His hair shone like silver, and his clothes were made of white feathers. He warned the boys, Stop this singing and dancing, or great evil will come to you. The boys obeyed the man and returned to their lodge. But the next night, they once again returned to the forest and began to dance. Round and round they went, until they grew lightheaded and hungry. Since they had not brought any food for a feast, they just kept on dancing. The oldest boy beat the drum faster and faster, and the boy's feet seemed to grow lighter. Before they realized it, their feet had left the ground, and they were rising into the sky. The oldest brother was the first to notice. He warned the others, Whatever you do, don't look down. Something very strange is happening. Just then, the mother realized her sons were missing. She called their names, but there was no reply. She ran to the spot where they loved to play in the forest and found a fire burning. When she looked up, she saw her children rising higher and higher into the sky. She screamed, Where are you going, my sons? Come back! Only the youngest of the boys heard his mother's cry. He looked down. When he did, he lost his balance and fell towards the earth. When he hit the ground, he disappeared. All his mother could see was a small hole where he had landed. The seven older brothers kept on floating upwards, dancing faster and faster until they looked like a ring of fire. As they went higher, they became a cluster of stars, known as the Pleiades. Each day during the winter, the mother returned to the spot where her youngest son had fallen. She wept for all her children. The next spring, a little green shoot sprang up from the hole. As the years passed, it grew into the first pine tree. Because the spirit of the youngest brother longed to be near the others, the tree grew straight up, reaching towards the sky. To this day, the pine tree grows tall and straight in the forest, while his seven brothers still dance in the winter sky. 
The Dancing Brothers, a story gathered by Martha Hamilton and Mitch Weiss. They go by the title, The Beauty and the Beast Storytellers. And they've collected a bunch of stories that kids can easily learn and tell. And you heard a young storyteller telling that story of the Dancing Brothers. What a pleasure to be with you today and to bring these stories to you. Stories from Bill Lepp and from Kevin Carr and from Dan Kalen and more. And of course, we'll bring you more stories and tellers on the next hour of The Apple Seed. Before we go, we want to remind you that you can visit us at byuradio.org slash service to find out about a project that we're doing, 10,000 acts of service we're hoping to accumulate over the course of a month. And you can do anything to participate. We hope that you will. Join us at the website to find out more, and we'll do some good together. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.